Dana, 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 Dana. In honor of Avatar, The Way of Water, what's your favorite aquatic beast in movies? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with the narwhal voiced by Jon Favreau and Elf, who says, Bye, buddy. Hope you find your dad. I'm at Patches, and I'm going to go with the octopus that plays drums in Aquaman. Cool. <laughs> one of my, my, on my top 10 list of that year. Mostly because of the answer. octopus that plays drums. <laughs> yes. It's me, Dave the Seven, and I enjoyed the journey more than the creature, but I'm going to take the jaguar shark from Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I feel like I have no choice but to go with the Kraken from uh, <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Dead Chest. Man's it's chest. only because, I mean, not that it was the only cinematic Kraken, but it is the only aquatic beast I can think of that inspired an NHL team and therefore needs to be my pick. You're not going with Release the Kraken from Clash of the Titans? I'm not. Wow. <laughs> bold. Bold. Going with the one that ate Johnny Depp. Canonically. What? Did the, the Kraken from Depp the Pirates of the Caribbean movies really inspire the hockey team? Is that uh, on paper fact? I mean, I, I, no, I mean, I think that oh, the concept okay. of the Kraken. It's not like a Mighty Ducks situation. Yeah, I didn't know if it was a Mighty <laughs> Ducks situation. Or it's like, this is actually Disney. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 419, Pandemic 149. It's the week of Wednesday, December 14th. That is the day that in 1974, the Towering Inferno opened. Got Steve McQueen and Paul Newman in it. I have never seen it. Has anyone here seen it? Way a long time ago, my dad put it on. He's like, you're going to like this disaster movie. And like uh, 20 minutes into it, I'm like, I'm bored. And you're like, I've seen Independence Day. I got no use for this. That, that, that likely Too was, Too much yes. talking, not enough infernoing. <laughs> I mean, after watching the Poseidon Adventure for this very podcast, I feel I like uh, I, sh- I should have moved, should th- moved on to that. I know. You're going to have um, to come down from Avatar and the Cameron vibes and find some of these movies. We're not, we're not talking tar this week. It's not happening. Ever it's next tar. week. Um, <laughs> it's talking apostrophe tar. Um, we we decided to save it. We oh, just, are we going to do Avatar and tar? That would be hilarious. We've done tar, haven't we? We've Probably. Tar. Yeah, yeah, save talk, it, save it for the top tar. tens. Now we're talking We're going to talk about tar. Avatar, The Way of Water next week after hopefully all of you listening have seen it. Because um, we're going to go full spoilers. Angry. Tidal wave we're gonna go full, information. We're going to go a, a full tidal wave uh, whale splash uh, deluge <laughs> of spoilers. So uh, see it before <laughs> we talk about it next week. Uh, so hold up on that. But in the meantime, do we have any reviews? We do not, except for, oh. we don't have any reviews on the iTunes store, but we do, I am told, have an email review that celebrates the Festival of Lights. Dave, is that true? <laughs> it is. Uh, here we go. <clears throat> this one's from somebody who identifies as Chucky. Hi, Fitware Gang. I've been listening. It's called Happy Hanukkah, David! Exclamation point. Hi, Fitware Gang. I've been listening for about a year now, and I love the podcast. I'm currently working my way through your backlog, and I'm having so much fun with the group's movie opinions from 2015 on. Anyway, I wanted to give an early Hanukkah present to David in the form of the following information. 
on December 5th, 2022, on an episode of Screen Draft on the Screen Drafts podcast, Katie Rich did not mention fighting in the war room when asked to plug her work. Hell yeah. Oh no. Sorry yeah. to be a title. Oh, this is this is the president I've I always wanted. Call out culture. You're canceled like Lydia Tarr. I want to be clear, it was after midnight by the time that happened, I think. Um no wow, excuse. I am I'm I'm duly shamed. I think that's a fair Holy I accept shit. my punishment. It sounds like <laughs> unlike Lydia candles, Tar. There was enough oil to burn for long enough to burn you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh Jackie says, sorry to be a tattletale, but I do love the teasing about whether somebody has plugged the show or not. Thanks for all the work you guys do, and please keep up podcasting. Happy holidays. Wow, yeah. Chucky. It was a that was a gift. All right. So you can email us at fitwr.podcast.gmail.com or head over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a five star review there. We read those on the show. You the calling man, you send you up. Reason calling nine and nine two zero. All right. I think I teased a few weeks ago that David and I had a fight brewing about a movie called Empire of Light, which played at Telluride. David, you saw it at Telluride or Toronto or one of those Telluride. early festivals. Um, and then I saw a little while later. And by the time I saw it, I had seen uh, a good a number of critics. It. There was a stink. Uh, it was getting stinky. <laughs> bit, bitching and moaning about this movie. And then my colleague Richard Lawson on uh, that other podcast, that I guess I won't name because I'm bad at plugging this one, um, loved it. And so I kind of had these, uh, you know, mother and father wrestling inside me before I went to see Empire of Light which is Sam Mendes' follow-up to 1917. That movie was based on his grandfather, World War One. This one is inspired by his mother, who raised him as a single mom in the early 80s in Britain. Um, and then it's also set in a movie theater, which is not the autobiographical part. So you've got Olivia Coleman as this woman who is struggling with mental health issues, works in a movie theater, starts up this romance with her younger co-worker, played by Michael Ward. And it's the early Thatcher era, so people are being racist assholes. And then... There's Toby Jones, who's a different kind of asshole working in the projection booth and their relationship kind of like ebbs and flows and her mental health, uh, you know, comes and goes as well. And it's beautifully shot and has this mm. great score by uh, Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor and is kind of a slight story with really great performances in it that I liked plenty. And David are like, why are you and our beloved colleagues being such assholes about I this mean, movie? It, it is a Herculean feat to remember anything about this movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but what are you that, talking but, like, about? It, the Blues Brothers on the marquee, David. The yeah. memories of cinema. I mean, your. I mean, this. I just this, remember this movie being very confused as to, or at least you know, maybe I can't blame that many entirely. I was certainly confused as to what the movie was trying to be about. It seems to be having a little bit of an identity crisis. Uh, you know, it's, is it like the, the stuff that you're talking about, about Olivia Coleman's mental health issues, schizophrenia that she um, is event eventually comes to the fore. It feels like it's backgrounded for a lot of the movie and then sort of comes out of nowhere and feels it like, is. even though it's, even though it's uh, supposedly inspired by Sam Mendy's own experience with his mother. And you would imagine had, would have a more lived in, and uh, firsthand witnessed quality to it. Uh, it feels like the most um, sort of over dramatized and hacky 
depiction of mental illness that I can remember. It feels very appropriate to like 19, the kind of movie you would see in the early 1980s or late 1980s or the fuck this takes place, as opposed to now in a movie about the 1980s. Uh, the relationship with her and Michael Ward is hilariously underbaked. I mean, like the whole thing just happens because she shows him the upstairs of the movie theater <laughs> it's just like oh i guess i'm in love they with love now. pigeons um, together they're, no they're, no they're, they're like um, a family with the pigeons that live in the movie look, theater. They're, they're hanging out they're they they're other co-workers they're DTF. So they david have you they, ever been DTF? They are DTF. Haven't you ever had a work friend, David? I, David, I, have you never uh, jacked off Colin Firth off in the off hours and wanted an alternative? <laughs> yeah, but I did it with We've a smile on there. my face. God damn it. Uh, right. um, I, yeah, Colin Firth as like the monster. Roger Deakins keeps order. that smile in the shadows, so we're not yeah. exactly sure. With, with no redeeming qualities or, or any sort of evident humanity whatsoever. That didn't really go a long way um i mean there's no one in this movie that is nearly so nuanced as the actual lobby of the theater uh which is this beautiful 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 Um, beautiful but also kind of trashy because it's a like it's in by the 80s it's like a 30s movie palace that's kind of gone through it that's what's interesting about it by now it would be the world's nicest yeah well it reminds me of the ziegfeld right like an old movie palace it's like been redone and redone and redone and like you know it doesn't look like it did in the 30s and like doesn't look like it's straight out of babylon yeah and I, I, I famously used to see Colin Firth getting jacked off in the projection booth. <laughs> um, yeah, Toby Jones is the projectionist is another missed opportunity. I mean, he shows up just to ramble on about like how movies work. Uh, and, he could have been jacking off Colin Firth. I mean, the other don't, I mean don't you really, love how pissed he is? But like, you idiots don't understand like little, I mean, persistence of vision. Ways, but the movie is so weirdly withholding about. The movies themselves. I mean, it's a very curious and striking detail that, I mean, I, the movie doesn't necessarily. Add, I mean, it kind of does. Some of some of the whole burden of like being about the power of movies is placed on it by the advertising, by the expectations, the Oscar season. Mm-hmm. But the movie does prime itself for that reading, and curiously, does not actually show any clips of people watching movies until about ninety minutes into the film. And then when Olivia Coleman, who has like never seen a movie in her life, apparently, yeah, <laughs> detail, well, they they do uh, set finally... that up in the beginning of the movie. She says the movies are for the customers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, and serve. also, so so there's this backstory that happens before the movie starts, where she's had this huge mental breakdown, and she's kind of coming back from that, and being like, no, 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 I'm a, I'm better now. I'm a normal person who doesn't yeah. have big feelings at all. And the, so the yeah, sense the is that she doesn't might... want to see yeah, a movie. Yeah, believe she watches. It would make there. her feel something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but when, yeah. you know, and when she, but it's all about sort of the power of community and there are several explicit speeches about, you know, sitting in the dark with strangers and not mattering, you know, the color of your skin or what you look like or who you are or how much money you make. And everybody is just sitting there together, all is one. And then when she finally goes to see a movie, she sees it by herself. It makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the many deeply annoying, th- I was so fucking bored of this movie. I felt nothing by it. Uh, every uh, choice just felt like it was on sort of uh, the adding to the shifting sands of what was happening here. None of it felt like it held together. The production design was lovely. The cinematography was nothing to write home about. I know Roger Deakins' name goes a long way. Shot it better than I would have, but that's about all I can say. Uh, <laughs> the, the score, ditto. I mean, Atticus Ross oh, and Reznor have... It's a good you know, score. I'm going to be working to that I'll score for ages. Store. Right, I'll, check. I'll, I'll spend some time working to it. I mean, that is the test. Uh, I, I was definitely hungry for something more in line with like Annie Baker's play, the flick, uh, if you're going to flirt with that sort of milieu. Um, but now she's I, made a movie. I Did really... you hear this news? That yeah, she, she has uh, made a movie. Yeah. Shot a little secret movie. I can't wait to see it. 
I don't think I don't know how secret it was, but uh, yeah, I I'm looking forward. Well, it was a um, secret. They didn't publicly announce it. Oh, secret! If it would be like surprise, it's a Sundance, but it's not. Uh, uh, I, all right, all right, it's not I, a secret. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I yeah didn't care for Empire of Light. Sorry to say, I I think that Sam Mendes pretty hit or miss, but uh, tends to be more on the miss side when he writes his own scripts. Um, and when has he written his own well, scripts? And he, he's co-wrote. a co-writer on 1917. And, yeah. on, and on this. Um, but I think that's and, it. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think he'd written his own script so far that. That seems to be the thing that's his problem. I think that it's dangerous to draw parallels between me- the mental health of an older woman and racism acted upon a young black man. Mm. I think, I think that is a fair read of this movie. I, th- I think the movie is... Uh, when it tries to do that, it does that in uh, horrible ways where it's like, wouldn't it be great if we could just watch movies and forget it? And I'm like, that is not pro. That's not a proactive solution to either of those problems. And to treat it as such, I feel is a little bit uh, dangerous. I, I feels don't very like... British of the film to, to think that, that it's that simple. Yeah. And I also don't think that it actually explores Olivia Coleman's uh, like actual condition. Uh, because when her, I think, uh, troubles are sort of peaking, we switch perspective to Steven, the Michael Ward character, uh, for a period of time as he, you know, has a second romance uh, with a, with an old, uh, and more importantly, other black person. And I really just, I think the third act of this movie uh, doesn't, doesn't know what it's saying or doing. And I, God. I'm tempted to say that's kind of dangerous. To be like, here's a great statement about what the power of art can do, and then like end on a poem that dangerous says it, nothing. Wouldn't it be more dangerous though if the movie had any dramatic power whatsoever and was capable, or if anyone of was seeing someone it. into of exciting someone into some kind of action or galvanizing the worldview rather than? Just I mean, maybe. See, the screen. thing, the thing is that I think Michael Ward and Olivia Coleman are both doing a very good job with what they have to work with. And like, there's you know stuff like Olivia Colman finally taking it to Colin Firth, where I'm like, yeah, let's see where this goes. Like, I know there's gonna be a a drop after this, you know, rise. Just to be clear to listeners, when Dave says taking it to Colin Firth, it doesn't mean jacking him off more. It means that. Wow, I can't believe how many times the phrase jacking him off has come up on this. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't think that was necessarily trying to get a rise out of people here. This is the podcast. Like stream. We'll only get a rise out of Colin Firth if we keep talking about this. Hello, uh, but yeah, I think it's <laughs> it, it has. There's this trajectory that it has for the first half where I was giving it leeway because it is beautiful. The score is there. I think it's under bones and all for me in <laughs> it's terms there. of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Well, I mean, like Trent Reznor's it's like present. could have been a concert pianist. I think this is a little bit uh, light. I did not touched. know that. Um. Yeah, he's a he's a, like a piano prodigy. Anyway, so um, I really think that the second half of this movie sort of negates it having to exist, even though I really enjoy some parts of it. Uh, in the the first the first Wait, half, it negates it having to exist just because it like stumbles with what it's trying to tackle. Yeah, and it stumbles with like two things that if there was like a Fableman's character where I could be like, that's the Sam Mendes character and the perspective was anchored around that. What he's doing is he's presupposing what his mom went through and what a black man in the eighties went through. And I think both Mm. of those things, he doesn't necessarily have enough traction to guess at. 
And so what we get instead is sort of like an absence of some filler material that I think would have been emotionally helpful. I don't know what that is, uh, because it just seemed by the end, I, you know, it's like, both of these characters are going to get to be happy. Isn't that what you wanted? And I'm like, I honestly didn't care. Like, there were, like, plot and thematic things I wanted resolved, not so much where the characters are going to end up. I feel like it's to the movie's benefit that it doesn't have an obvious Sam Endy stand-in. Like, we've just seen so many of those. Like, none of us want another Belfast. Like, The Fableman's is kind of its own thing. Like, I think his active imagination about what his mother went through is pretty strong. I agree with you on, like, the experience of racism being, like, a little bit thinner, um, even though I think, you know, there's more to that character than some of the critics are giving it credit for. Um, But I'm glad that there's no, like, kid in it watching all this unfold. No, I I agree with that. I think... Dave, you kind of put it in perspective for me where this movie becomes an intellectual exercise and Sam Mendes, theater director, doesn't have the kind of dramatic chops to construct the story or make it metaphorical. Where now, now you, again, you put it in the perspective for me where I'm thinking about Banshees of Inishirin, where I'm like, mm-hmm. this is a very similar type of exercise, except McDonough has the, he can write it, he can write through it and kind of plow through it and create. Uh, escalation, dramatic escalation. This movie's just like flatlined from the very beginning. I kept waiting for like where where is this movie gonna blow up? And I guess it kind of does when there's a parade at some point and the neo Nazis skinheads come by that and scene with the, uh, Katie flirted with the like Thatcher politics. Of... But I'm like, this is not blowing up. Oh yeah, it's Chariots <laughs> no, of I mean, Fire. There's, there's Chariots of Fire. Good crossover yeah, with yeah, the, the Crown this season. Oh hey, no. Well, and crown, it, but it, yeah. It has the Fableman's explanation of how movies works coming out of, uh, yeah, Toby, uh, Toby Jones's mouth. And I think it has, is this like the, is the poem at the end, the same poem that's also at women talking? Wow. The, the Yates, the Yates. I don't know. The whole, like, uh, uh I, I would be, the, if, if so, you know, I saw those movies at the same film festival in the span of about, you know, 36 hours. I would have really felt like a dunce for missing the connection. Um, yeah, well, it's like, and just forgot. It's the same you know, one. It's that poem about like how the tr- you you shouldn't be jealous of the trees for rebirth because it's actually like a long death and like the turning mm, of the leaves or um, whatever. Uh, and I think that that also pops <laughs> up. There's just there's there's so I was sold on this movie by its preview because I'm like, yeah, why not a whole bunch of misfits in a theater in the '80s doing you know we love movie stuff. Good. But it ends up like date feeling like it needs to dig too deep into its characters that aren't deep enough to support that digging. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could have seen the appeal to a movie uh, about a bunch of theater employees in this lavish, you know, but crumbling movie palace who are disinterested in the movies and have all sorts of other things going on and sort of gradually through circumstance and unexpected turns uh, find themselves, you know, finding some value in their, in their job or what, you know. The, the, the function of the theater or whatever. Um, but th- this is not the movie. The characters are pretty disinteresting to a person. They have very little meaningful overlap with one another. Um, the only thing that sort of rises to the level of meaningful drama is the Chariots of Fire, the local premiere of Chariots of Fire, <laughs> uh, which becomes a, a spectacle unto itself. Um, and I love what a big thing. deal that is. It's very charming yeah. to me. Yeah, uh, it, that was that was fun um i think <laughs> her dress is used... great it's on, dresses, not zipped up properly but it's a great dress can we can we wrap up by saying that olivia coleman elevates this movie i i, I want to go to bat i'm 
I I don't think she's great in this movie, movie. But I gotta agree with Katie that like there's redeeming qualities to Empire of Light. Olivia Coleman is I such think a it is a pretty good movie. Good actress. She's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think I Michael mean, Ward's I, good too. I think I, I think Michael Ward also good. I just want to see her I, mumble words. This is not the lost daughter, which is like next level. Well, uh, that's what I was gonna say though. It's like when you when she is coming off of a performance that sort of Titanic, uh, and that that nuanced and sophisticated and a real like only Olivia Coleman could pull this off sort of thing that really highlights her mm. talents. Seeing her mumble her way through such mediocre material, it, it makes me like the movie less. I mean, yes, she elevates it, but it's also such a clear waste of her ability um, that it, it's hard for me to watch any scene of this movie if I can remember doing it, doing that and not think about, you know, how it's failing her every step of the way and, and that it should be better. But she's never swept up popcorn on the floor before. Now she has. Mm. She's never cared for pigeons. Smooched. In the uh, abandoned movie, put it in the next Skip Ryan Stones. Johnson who done it. That that's what yeah. I want. Oh wow! I yeah. do want to say that the only uh, 2023 movie that I've seen is Kelly Reichardt showing up, which has pigeon, uh, a broken wing pigeon as a major plot element in it as well. So, but it also <laughs> has Fableman's Michelle Williams. So, uh, you know, combining the best of both worlds. Why not? Empire of Light, a blended version of other movies we saw. <laughs> I saw Empire of Light and showing up very close together, and I was like, holy shit, they're going to be so pissed when they find out that there's just another <laughs> they, pigeon. They both did the thing. Sarah Polly has adapted a book that is based on a real Mennonite true crime situation and has turned the entire exercise into a film called Women Talking. I, I, I haven't actually said uh, the author's name uh, out loud before. Miriam so forgive Taves. Me. Taves. Taves. You no don't think that's going to be what it is. Chicago Blackhawk Jonathan Taves, I believe. The plot of this movie uh, is that eight women from a Mennonite colony are basically elected to uh, deal with the situation. The situation is men in their colony have been uh, using cow tranquilizers to uh, drug and sexually assault the women in the community, uh, some as young as I believe nine. Uh, that we have referenced. No, in this it's film. three. I believe three. Three, the youngest. Really, it, really it. awful stuff. <laughs> it is horrible. Uh, it is very, I think, smartly not portrayed. Uh, but uh, it is. You definitely get the idea of what's going on and the scope of it. Although the majority of the movie takes place in a hayloft above a barn, where these women decide whether they're going to leave or uh stay and fight uh or forgive the men which is the choice that is uh, given to them the men have all left the colony to go bail out the other men who were arrested not for the assaults but because uh one of the women uh attacked them with the scythe and so for their own protection they were arrested they're going to get bailed out these women have 48 hours to decide what they're going to do and as the title suggests oh. they talk through it 
Dave, just a quick correction. Hashtag not all men, a line of dialogue that is spoken without the hashtag verbatim <laughs> in the movie. Uh, because It'd be weird ben if Wishaw, they had a hashtag on there. They do, oh, yes. But, uh, somebody does say not all men. Uh, ben Wishaw uh, does stay behind to, uh, what, take, take the minutes of the meeting. Um, That's correct. And, uh, yeah, I got to say, I kind of wish he didn't. Uh, because I, you know, I, Ben Wishaw is, uh, as an immortal place in my heart for Paddington alone, but, uh, I think <laughs> his performance here is a hair too precious and the movie can bear. Oh, he is like a, a turned up to glassy eyed, glassy eyed yeah. 11. And Rudy uh, Mara, who glassy-eyed. I also, I would yeah. also die for, um, I think has a similar thing going on with her performance. And I, I think that relationship, if anything, needs a little bit. It needs to be a little bit less ethereal, a little bit more grounded. Um, for, Although, for is the it work and it isn't like having seen Rudy Mara in Nightmare Alley a year ago, playing another like I am a beautiful woman who loves this man, and I'm here to be kind of the symbol of goodness. Like, there's a lot more going on in the performance here than in that movie. Like, I, they, I, I, mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, you can compare anything to Nightmare Alley, and it's probably going to come out looking all right. Uh, I mean, I, but I think this is a pretty good movie. I mean, I, I, I was sort of electrified. Uh, seeing it the first time i the, the sort of stagecraft of it all worked for me i thought that sarah Polly found a number of ingenious ways to make this a film that is essentially as the title suggests a bunch of women talking in a barn feel very cinematic and crackling and alive and not nearly as didactic as you might imagine because the characters are not all assigned just one position uh one rhetorical mm-hmm. position to hold on to it's a lot more fluid and alive than that um, and you know, when you have actors like Jesse Buckley and Claire Foy, uh, boys, you're all a bunch of boys, no boys here, but, um, and, um, uh, she's, she's arguing on behalf of some boy. Like, right. is she the one who's just like, what are we going to do with our like 12 year old sons who like, yeah. we don't want to turn into monsters. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, the, the, the subject matter is riveting the conversations they're having, you know, at, at, which are for, you know, it's an interesting thing is that there's a lot of levity in how they're talking. There is a lot of wit, and there's also a feeling of that the, the women are sort of uh, more educated than the movie would let on that they were, um, mm. which is strange. But uh, they, well, I, I don't think that like they they can't read, but like I don't know that there's anything that indicates that they like know what a map of the world looks like. They're just like well, intuitive. no, they are pointedly ignorant about you know some basic facts of the world in which they live because they've been deprived of that information. But there is also a just a general loquaciousness that. Seemed out of line, but like whatever. The uh, you know Ben Wishaw, you know they be the, all the worldly they, like, one. And... They spend like hours like doing nothing but chores. Like if they're gonna talk to each other, like I feel like it makes total sense for them to have like a strong verbal tradition sure. among them. Um, yeah, and I, but I, you know, they are. I think it, they need to have that sort of um, this sort of air of intelligence, which they can come by, of course, that education because they are having very sophisticated, high level conversations philosophical nature about what it sort of means to reimagine society for themselves to start over mm-hmm. in a place that's sort of away from this violence and the misogynistic um you know violence that was subjected that they were subjected to and um there are conversations that are broadly applicable even beyond you know Benedict society society at large about um sort of conceiving of a more matriarchal way of living and i found those conversations riveting and you know it goes without saying brilliantly acted it's a shame that despite Sarah Polly's uh, lively staging, the movie is an absolute eyesore. Uh, yeah, I, mean, like I was going to say, it yeah. looks like butt. There needs, there I... need to be like public hearings 
about the choices made in regards to the cinematography of this film. Uh, it is, it, this has been dragged through the mud. I mean, the film itself looks like it was dragged through the mud, but the actual choices here have been dragged through the mud since it premiered at Telluride. Um, it feels pretty worn out, uh, but it does bear repeating, if you're considering seeing it, that the movie looks like butt. Uh, I think that the idea initially yeah. was to shoot it in, or, or if they could have afforded to do this, like if they were granted permission by financiers, I'm just, this is conjecture. But I feel like they wanted to shoot in black and white. There's a photographer whose name is escaping me, whose work inspired the look of the movie. They were told that they couldn't. That's my read. And they tried to arrive at a compromise um, that maintained... Uh, oh, but that's what I want to talk about. That's where I got sidetracked about their intelligence and whatnot. Because that's the levity. Like, the movie feels... It looks not dissimilar from, like, Emancipation or one of these very desaturated, like, World War II movies. Uh, and it's sort of meant to ca capture this arid environment where they are deprived of so much and they're stuck in this musty barn. Uh, but the, the women are, despite the extremely harrowing circumstances under which they're convening, very, very lively and upbeat. They laugh. They tell jokes. Um, they are... Uh, they braid their friend? braids together. They braid their braids. Yeah. One second. Teenage girls are going to be calling. teenage girls. We have a landlord <laughs> call. One second. <laughs> oh, okay. I, while David is distracted, I want to talk about the it looking like butt thing. It's like I get that it looks like a flashback in a Zack Snyder movie. I get that it's like not colorful or like rich in that way. But like, I don't get why it inherently is seen as ugly to have desaturated photography like this. I mean, I don't think it's inherently ugly. I just think it's a really bizarre choice for a hmm. movie that is based so much on sitting on a group of performances and being in a specific place that like my mind was turning it yellow. Like even now, like when I went back to read reviews after I'd seen the movie, I like looked at the promotional stills, which are in full color. And I'm like, look at the vibrancy of like these costumes, the actual setting. Like this you is like have... the opposite of those Mad Max stills that were all in like desaturated grays and the actual movie is so bright. It's the reverse. <laughs> exactly. But I think it's like uh, you, you could have dark corners and you could have the great unknown beyond the horizon without mm. necessarily desaturating everything just on the level where it's not black and white. It's like silver and gray, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, I think has a dampening effect on the whole thing. Some things that really pop in that uh, low contrasty thing is like highlights, eye shines, definitely know when characters have either been punched in the face or crying. Uh, I think that really works for it. Happens a good bit. But I also think it uh, flattens a lot of the vistas. I don't know if they shot this in like a green screen loft or somewhat. I think uh, it was in a green screen loft, but there's lots of outdoor photography too. Yeah, but it, I mean, it was, the, yes, there are a lot of special effects involved. The the uh, the effect of uh, making everything sort of weirdly desaturated and allowing these sort of highlights to become halos means that every time everyone was like framed uh, against what I assume now is a green screen door looking out over the rest of the community, it just really popped like uh, almost like bad mask lines uh, like you would have in like star wars or, or early early blue screen effects there's just there's i'm not sure i get why the choice was made uh even if it wasn't uh what david was saying if it was something more about like you know this is you know of stark world that we have to deal with starkly and these women are like struggling to be seen through the 
gloom. Uh, I think too much is sacrificed in like taking me out of the movie. Try for me trying to like reorient where I am. And then there's some scenes at the end that, that like take place at night, and they underlight them, which is fine because you need to see the stars. But also like get throw me a bone here, Sarah Polly. I would like <laughs> to see your movie. I thought the the nighttime scenes looked a lot because I kept. You know, the, the, the movie starts and it's this prologue and my initial feeling was like, oh, okay, this is just how they are making the flashbacks look to delineate from the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then you just keep waiting and waiting and waiting for someone to realize that the movie was shot on a butt. And then, you know, they go to the nighttime scenes and, <laughs> beca- you know, the stars twinkling and they're out there or on the roof of the barn or wherever they might be. And they, they do, I felt they, they achieved a more deliberate seeming look mm. then but uh then we snap back to the the musty brown gray afternoons and it's a shame but i do think i i i you know i was a little higher on the movie right after i saw it and wrote it up than, than i am now i think the some of the technical elements soured the experience for me in my memory but i think it, you know it, it's uh it's a very sophisticated rhetorical exercise i found it very powerful and moving on on the grounds which is telling its story uh, the performances are wonderful almost across the board. Um, yeah, I think it starts... Oh, Michelle was perfectly good. Yeah, it starts with like a thing that's like, this is an act of uh, female imagination, or women's imagination is a, a title at the very beginning, which yeah, I understand is at the end of the book. I think uh, it's at the it, beginning of the book, actually. Well, there we go. Uh, either Women way, talking to correct you. Yeah, I well, mean, that's... Actually, that that that'll work for me it's (laughs) it it is moving and i do think it's important and good but it's obviously as you're listening to this podcast it's hard to make that sell that like this is an important movie about mennonite women talking about whether they should you know stand up for themselves and if so how uh it it really there's some sort of magic in between what it is and what the movie ends up being uh, that I think is hard to describe, but it is the collection of these performances and uh, overcoming Ben Wishaw uh, that <laughs> makes it sort of work. I thought Ben Wishaw was perfectly I mean, lovely is, in this movie. I, I cannot imagine another Ben Wishaw performance where I my takeaway was he should have been played by Joaquin Phoenix instead. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is almost impossible for me to think of another scenario where that would be my first reaction. But uh, this is. This I is mean, the maybe one. he could. Do, he could. Maybe Village Adrian Brody could have stepped in there too. I was or is that still too. I think that's that's simple, Jack. I think that's where you're <laughs> heading in that direction. Yeah. Um, I feel like I should just jump it. Like I have loved Sarah Polly movies. Like I think Take This Waltz is a masterpiece, as is um, Stories We Tell. And I have felt slightly underwhelmed by women talking, and I feel kind of like sad and like I like in denial about it because I wanted to love this movie. A lot. I mostly agree with what you guys have said, aside from the cinematography stuff and Ben Wishaw stuff, like that it is very admirable. It's surprisingly entertaining. It's got great performances in it. It like doesn't have that like crescendo of maybe surprise to it that I think is what has really dazzled me about her other movies. Um, but I still think it's really worthy and I'm really excited for her to like get a seat at the Oscar table this time around. Um, I guess stories we tell had that to some extent. Um, she's going to go win that adapted screenplay Oscar. And Do you I'm really think really excited that about she it. She has a seat at the Oscar table because it seems like this movie is losing. I literally traction. just said no, she's going to win that adapted screenplay. Yeah. Oscar. Let me, let me reframe. I object. Not I object. <laughs> I, do, I just, I don't feel like it's part of the conversation. I feel well, it hasn't like it's losing points. Yet. 
It is not open yet. Um, I think Katie see. is reading into. Some, I mean, and, and I don't blame her for doing this. The only bellwethers we have, uh, like it placing on the AFI list. It was on the. I think yeah, it was on, on the, the NBR list. NBR list. Um, Let's see. It got. That makes sense. Did it, did it blank at the Golden Globes? I don't. No, it got a screenplay yeah, nomination not, at the it, Golden Globes. I mean, Sarah oh, Polly not getting nominated director is like, like I get it. Oh, and Hildur Guinadotter got nominated for the score, which is great. Um, no, it's just it's showing up. Like I don't think it's, it's a real. Glass Onion. Whim- uh, Glass Onion is adapted. Oh, no, Glass Onion is adapted. Um. Yeah, I think it'll be. I think it, I think she will win the Oscar for adapted screenplay. That category is very adapted, strange. Right? It's like all sequels are. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I was. So yeah, way I was of being, water I was, would be in this. I was trying to correct patches and yeah, Top Gun Maverick. Way of Water is gonna is gonna win. I have best a hard time imagining Avatar and Way of Water competing for best adapted screenplay, but I don't. <laughs> How I don't dare think, you? We'll settle that next. Avatar week. Avatar didn't get nominated for screenplay. I don't think. Um, <laughs> which is fine. Nobody shed a tear over that. Which is fine. I see you. I'm taking notes. Well, like, James Gray had a seat at the Oscar table this year and that his distributor was taking his movie really seriously and pushing it. I don't think Armageddon Time is going to get nominated for anything, but I think his it, it was being regarded and considered and pushed in a way that it deserved, I think. So even if it doesn't get nominated, it was still included. Does that make sense? It does. So by being a movie that exists, that gets a By being a movie that its distributor people, took seriously as worthy and in, in putting in front of people. Yeah, like, we've all seen great movies that were just like, why, like, Many James Gray movies where you're just like, why won't the distributor actually give this thing a shot? And um, Women Talking and Armageddon Time have both gotten that. I mean, like, I guess like in that way, like, Women Talking exists to, for the people who paid for it, win Oscars. And that is a validation of Sarah Powell's contribution to cinema, I suppose. I think she's fantastic. Wait. And I, I'm anxious to see it. What do you I mean just, a was, validation of her contribution to cinema? It's You're saying Women Talking, the fact that it exists means it's like, has a seat at the Oscar table. That's why it exists. For no, a the fact that like person. the fact that uh, United Artists is treating it seriously as a contender is what makes it, it gives it a seat at the Oscar table, regardless of how many nominations it gets. It gets it's part of the conversation. Sure, People the, the, are considering it in that way. I guess I'm taking the leap of it exists to do that. Like people wouldn't put up money for a movie like Woman Talking anymore unless it was going to win an Oscar. And people believe unless Sarah Pauline was the they, real deal. Unless they thought they could promote it in that way and saying, hey, you need to go see this movie because it might win an Oscar. Like, I think winning the Oscar is great. They're happy about that. Yes. But, like, I think it doesn't have to win it for it Correct. to have That's become exactly financially feasible by being an Oscar contender. It's not selling itself as, as Avatar 2. You know what I mean? It's not in that lane. Yeah, but also, like, this kind of like the least interesting way to talk about this movie, I think. No, it's very ridiculous. Like, I don't really, I don't really saying, care why. I don't really care why United Artists put the money up for it, or, or Ryan, or whatever. Well, you should care because it means Sarah Polly is like here to stay. I think that's what I'm getting at, which is like the people want to pay for Sarah Polly movies. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I think she's become a name that people want to get behind. So yeah, I agree. It will be even more so when she wins she the Oscar. Movie in a long I told time. you she's going to win. Yeah, she had a bunch of oh, kids sure, and then yes, a major yes, head yes, injury. Yes. She also had a crazy ass head injury. You should read about it. Are you sure that a having fire- a bunch of kids wasn't just her crazy ass head injury? Am I right? Katie? I mean, I think Good. that's what makes her that's what makes her better than us is that she <laughs> had a bunch of kids and was doing fine and then a fire extinguisher fell on her head and that was what knocked Jesus. her out. Whereas just the children are enough yeah, to take her. She should try podcasting. Yeah. 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 Hey, hey, oh, okay. We've been talking. Go see it when it's in theaters, <laughs> if any of that sounded interesting. It be forewarned though, it looks weird. 
that's in high frame rate. talked a lot about the white lotus but not about whether or not you like <laughs> that's, that's really good <laughs> yeah i just can't go up that other we gotta do like the <laughs> oh man get, get the season the two going. theme song bangs i i want it's so i've been good. listening it bangs shit. it bangs White Lotus season two is Mike White's second season of his anthology series where rich people go to a hotel. This one took place in Sicily. And as always, the season starts with a body and ends with the wrap up of who that body is. Those are the things that seem to be connecting the two White Lotus seasons we have. We will be having a third, but tonight Mm. we're going to be talking about the second. All the episodes have aired. They're available on HBO Max for now. Oh, so <laughs> they're gonna remove this, this one. It's gonna be a, a I'm pretty sure people are watching it. Oh, full spo- yeah, full yeah. spoilers. Full We've spoilers is what I'm going Although, into. I don't want to talk about HBO Max business much longer, but the fact that they announced all that bullshit like eight hours after the White Lotus finale aired, they're like, great, we have this hit show. Oh, all, also, here's all of our bullshit uh, business Also, decisions. you can't watch Westworld anymore. That was bizarre. Maybe we should talk about I mean, Westworld what's wild next week. Is anyway. the, the second, I mean, The Nevers is a hilariously misbegotten show a show i watch for this podcast and only for this podcast is the only reason it, i know really, what it is truly and the finale only for the hatches of the world exactly but uh okay I you mean the season the season one mid-season finale yeah when it's revealed that Gul'dan is behind everything and, uh, the, they shot the second half of the season in the summer or winter of 2021 and those episodes it will just, never come out just gone <laughs> the nevers it's right there in the title <laughs> White Lotus. It's more fun to talk about than David than David Zaslov. Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think um, Aubrey Plaza lured me into this season and would have even if I didn't have to do a podcast Seduced about it. You into it, if you will. Seduced me into it, uh, but instead of I think season one's sort of uh, rumination on how rich white people bomb into native societies and uh, completely destroy it without really knowing what they're doing almost passively. Uh, This one was much more about uh, sexual politics and relationships and murderous gays. Uh, And I appreciated, I think that a little bit more. Um, I was, even though I greatly enjoyed the first season, I was unable to uh, lure Java into watching it but got got her into season two just because it seemed, I think, like the intrigue was a little more intriguey and a little less uh, navel-gazy, at least for me, in this lineup of characters. Falling uh, less into the trap of let, like, privileged people watch other privileged people ruin things. Like, it, yeah. it, it wasn't as class-conscious and therefore didn't feel as much like a trap. I love me Connie Britton and her teenage daughter and uh, the other teenage daughter that also had... Uh, mimetic desire problem but i like the mimetic, mimetic desire problem better with ethan and harper and daphne and cameron 
uh, with some sex thrown in uh, rather than a whole bunch of teenagers on drugs. I think mm. that that really worked. Uh, I really enjoyed our um, locals, our, our sex workers, and their um, often humorous attempts to uh, make it in Sicily. And, uh, and we yeah. worried about them so much. And then in the end, they just got exactly what they wanted. Which, you know, I, I you think got is... to stay friends. I'm so happy. Yeah. Me and Lucia forever. Yeah. David, what'd you think? Oh, I loved it. I mean, obviously the sex season of the White Lotus is going to be the, the really excellent one. I enjoyed the first <laughs> season, but this, uh, every show should be about sex at the end of the day. You're going to a television show. You're going to maybe watch for seven hours. It should be about sex. Uh, <laughs> And this is, you know, the sexual politics and gamesmanship here. It's all a lot of fun and interesting and dovetails with, with class um, in really interesting ways. Uh, I loved the cast. I love the fact that um, his name is escaping me right now, as it always does, as I am tired. I slept in my son's unused crib last night because he was taking up too much of the bed. David, uh, stop doing this. Yeah, who are we talking another, about? Uh, and Who are you slept, trying to bring up? Yeah, slept keeps... is a generous term. Um, I'm I'm stalling so I can find his name. Uh, and Give me I some clues. It. It's uh, no, it's uh, oh, where'd it go? Yeah. <laughs> Will Sharp. Will Sharp, who plays Ethan. Ethan, uh, yeah. It, you know, is a, is a very interesting career in television and in front of and behind the camera. But he also directed the <laughs> Secret Life of Louis Wayne, which is the biopic where Benedict Cumberbatch plays the 19th century fellow who compulsively was drawing cats all the time. So that guy is having an interesting life. Um, <laughs> both Louis Wayne and Will Sharp. Uh, so wait, Will and, Sharp was your like MVP of the season? Not my MVP, just my like, hey, <laughs> it's so interesting that he exists. And Did you like, know in, like, that he existed as like the director of that movie before? Yes, absolutely. That was the okay, I, 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 I saw him. that movie. I just like did not I didn't know anything about the director of it. I didn't realize that he had eight entire abs. And was that? Um, yeah, and, it's uh, it's unfortunate that now people like, that hot okay. get to make movies. Also, yeah, right. Like, cool your jets. Like, have like cut one of those things off of your resume, please. Yeah. Um, and I was just relieved that Theo James's dick was fake. Uh, and because, like, you know, some people really have it all. Uh, the the show, yeah, the characters are a lot of fun. I love seeing F. Marie Abraham just fucking just fucking rolling this year. He was in that. Guillermo del Toro uh, anthology show on Netflix, which um, was really hit or miss as anthology shows tend to be, but he was really wild and out in his episode where he played a uh, mortician or morgue worker performing an autopsy and things go way out of hand. F. Murray Abraham in his 80s is uh, kicking ass. Always fun to see. Um, they killed off my least favorite character, both season running. No disrespect to Jennifer Coolidge, but I really... Wow, that, wow. That, I, I, I never really got as much out of the character as uh, everyone else seemed to. Um, I loved Mark, Michael Imperioli in sort of rueful dad mode um, and the v sort of intergenerational conflict between the three generations of men in that family. And What do you think of uh, nice guy Albie as a, uh, I mean, a young-ish man who wants to respect women? Did you feel insulted? I mean, he got played exactly as he should have, and I loved his very sort of pat recognition of the fact that he got played. That she um, played me? <laughs> yeah, she played me. And, you know, I was trying to imagine the scenario in which I asked my 
late father for fifty thousand dollars that I could give to his ex worker in Italy and like how that conversation would go. Um, <laughs> very different. Even if I had some I, leverage on him, I just like Portia and Alby circling back to each other, and like this is something that Mike White talked about on so watching the podcast that Dave and I are both working on, but we're not on talking about. But he was like, yeah, I kind of see that as a happy ending for them, and like I see it as sort of depressing at the same time, but like. They both got what they wanted to like do something more adventurous, and they're like, "Shit, it's crazy out there." I, how about well, I go with you? You're much easier to deal with. And that's sort of a, a recurring theme throughout the season because you know the relationship that um, Theo James and uh, what is yeah. uh, what Megan Fahey, Megan Fahey uh, that they have together is you know demented in its own way, and there's a lot of baggage there, a lot of things left unsaid and swept under the rug, and that's how they do it, but. There is a feeling of needing to compete with that energy uh, that that uh, Aubrey Plaza and Will Sharp have um, and their ultimate recognition, you know, when the, this fire is reignited for them by virtue of the jealousy that he feels. It's sort of like, you know, they are enough for each other in a way. And I think, you know, there's a lot of intrigue happening across all these characters, but I think with the Haley Lee Richardson and the, the Albie storyline does come back to like you know not everyone is cut out for that lifestyle <laughs> not that that lifestyle is necessarily doing wonders for megan fahey's character but uh but that like uh know. megan fahey's character has it all figured out daphne is she, absolutely the most aspirational like character on this show oh definitely but like <laughs> i just she's so like able to like bury it down and be unbothered and beautiful and like not care if she votes so like would we you know say we want to talk about or no, say, no, like, but like, I, I don't know, she's on like great drugs or whatever. Like, you know how we all talk about how like if we had a billion dollars or, you know, a hundred billion dollars like Elon, we would get the fuck off of social media and do something else. I feel yeah. like Daphne is what I would do if I was insanely rich. <laughs> Just like remove myself from reality entirely, get off of social media, not know anything yeah, about the news and like drift away. There are moments in the two final episodes of the season where the hurt that she exposes is just so deep um, that I don't know if that entirely tracks for me. Uh, I think that it's a hurt that, you know, Harper, Aubrey Plaza's character, is hip to eventually. And for all of her paranoia and her competitiveness um, that runs throughout the season, um, I think she ultimately developed such a distaste for that, that she is extremely happy to find something a little bit more stable and sustainable with her husband at the end of the day. I just really like the idea that, like, for most people with the exception of Tanya, who's off living. It, when, now that I see the entire season, a completely separate storyline from what I thought she was actually doing. Ooh. Which is just like having... Like, once we got into the finale, I'm like, okay, I see the scam. But there was... Uh, that's episode seven? It's a good five episodes where I'm just like, and then Tanya parties with the gays until her, hus <laughs> until her husband comes home. And then oh, she's so like, you're like waiting for it to be like Greg being like being mad at her for partying with the gays or something. Well, like Greg coming back and just being mad at her and her having to finally confront the conversation she started having with Greg before uh, he left. Uh, I was texting I just, Katie throughout the finale because I was convinced that they were trying to get her to cheat on Greg and void it uh, that way. Rather, and than I was convinced they her. weren't going to kill her off. So yeah, I, I, we're, but we're I, both I thought that she was going to end up, you know, doing something drastic, only to realize that they were just trying to get her to have sex with this guy, uh, you know, with an ulterior motive rather than trying to kill her. But no, it seems pretty convincing that yes, yeah. they were trying to kill her. <laughs> but I do like how for everybody else, it was sort of like um, they're it, it like your love, your love and your sex life 
and your marriage, if that's what it is, it either works for you or it doesn't. And that's the important distinction, not so right. much what it is that makes it work or what it is that is like bothering you. Like if you could both sit in that relationship and you don't even need to be truthful with each other. And I guess the finale presupposes that you actually can never know everybody's, you know, the corners of everybody's mind room. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really like that as coming off much more nuanced than just sort of like, eh, different strokes. Um, but I think it managed to stretch it over seven episodes to the point where it's like, I'm happy for Cameron and Daphne and Ethan and Harper, even yeah. though like they're basically dedicating this part of their lives to playing like weird little fucked up sex games with I each mean, other. I mean, to Dave's but... point, there is a kind of bliss in how uh, Theo James' character is just so at peace with who he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's just he like, sits down yeah, and gives weird. that toast and he has like a, that scar on his face or that cut on his face of being punched <laughs> and like doesn't even like sort of mentions like it's great getting to know you Harper and like is obviously stirring the pot but is also just like a golden retriever puppy yeah. dog at that point and you're like oh and she's accepted that and he's accepted that and it's not that they're trying to change each other they've just both accepted that's what their marriage is and and they seem but fine we, with it. We are fond of him in that moment, even though we are told, but don't really see. I mean, we see sort of like an imagined version of events, but we are told that he tried to, you know, he put a move on Harper. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Know, and which it is, you know, in, in terms of does it, it feels like it falls outside of the bounds of puppy dog, golden retriever behavior. I mean, that is an actual aggressive move to disrupt somebody else's marriage, um, even if he doesn't you know, find that bond particularly sacrosanct. But uh, like he also he also arouses passion in Ethan mm. and laughs immediately afterwards, like of yeah. course this was gonna happen. And apparently has been doing it since since college. So what if that's just what arouses Pat that's the only way to get a rise out of Ethan. Ethan's awesome. like deadly boring and stumbled into some richness. And so Cameron's like, well I'm either going to convince him to join business crimes with me later on, or I'm going to swat around his hornet's nest for a while because that's what gets a rise out of Ethan. Ethan is kind of boring. I mean, and I, and yeah. I say that kind of as a compliment to Will Sharp's performance because I think he's boring in an interesting way. But uh, like the, the character isn't boring, but as a person uh, to be married to, if I were in Aubrey Plaza's shoes, he seems boring. And I do wonder if, you know, outside of like the one, like, like the flame has been sparked again, and hopefully that'll last for a minute or two. But I do wonder how sustainable this is in the long term for them. I mean, all yeah, I wouldn't the marry men, Ethan. No thanks. Yeah, all the men who weren't murderers, I still have high potential to be murderers, in my opinion, just as like characters. Are we like, talking about all... Tom Hollander, though? Like, who was, I mean, I guess he didn't, he wasn't a murderer because he didn't actually murder anybody, but man, I loved him so much. Yes. That's, that's it. I don't really have anything to say. I mean, everyone should go watch Hannah, where um, Tom Hollander is another creepy bad guy. I do want to talk about uh, Haley Lou Richardson, who is yeah. you know, one of uh, America's you know, underappreciated treasures uh, on the screen. Uh, always wonderful. I loved, I mean, Katie was really on the Haley Lou Richardson's uh, wardrobe beat, I feel. Was oh, God, was no, it? I feel like, no. no, more people than me, because I mostly just like it. 
I mean, I as an old person, I look at being like, is that what young people dress like these days? And apparently no, but also sort of yes. And I, I don't know. I don't trust I did, myself enough. I did not notice at all. So as an old yeah, person, no, apparently, I was like, why are people mad at what Haley the Richards is dressing like? They're like, oh, she's dressing like the early 2000s. I'm like, well, <laughs> I wasn't. I know I, I was, was a teenager then and that that people looked like that. I don't understand. Is that bad? I'm still, I guess, sort of mystified that that uh, situation happened online. But, but I do think that like Portia needed a little bit of like what happened here was sort of good for Portia in the long run. One, <laughs> yes. uh, she no longer has to work for Tanya, which is great. Uh, but, but two, I feel like, yeah, she she needed uh, some backbone. She needed a reason to stick up, stick up herself. and. I think a little bit of danger went a long way for her. Um, you know, she was never really in any mortal danger, even if she was with some shady folks. But uh, I think she probably... Uh, I think that's a possibility they might have killed her if things went a different so. way. If she had happened... To, no, because he was dispatched, like, you know, deliberately to spend time with her so that she wouldn't be on the boat when they went home. I mean, that was all put into motion, replanned. So I yes. think, you know, they, would they have, if push came to shove, killed her? It's possible. But I think yeah. they, they obviously made efforts not to do that. It didn't seem like Jack was a killer, exactly. Like, he would, like, hand her over to someone who would kill her, but not that he would do the job himself. Yeah. Mm. Also, I would you have so gotten in the threat. car with him when you thought he'd stolen your cell phone? Uh, well, you I mean... Get back to somehow. Yeah, that's, that's like, true. That's a good question. I, yeah, a lot of, I don't know. A lot of these people in the show made decisions where I was like, I would have done something different, but you know, would have, <laughs> who would have had a boring vacation in Sicily? Dave Gonzalez. Oh, yeah, I was great just vacation in Italy Sicily. a few you months kidding? ago, and it was nothing like this. That is <laughs> just, to say. I feel like I, I really made some mistakes. I just want to be clear, I would not have married Greg. I just wouldn't have, you know, especially with my half billion dollars that, as we all know, I have. Yeah. Uh, I just felt like that was a bad choice. Well, I mean, she wasn't like a hero of season one, so I was kind of fine no. watching her suffer because of, like during the beginning of the season where she looks like Peppa Pig and she can't like wow. have a good time in Sicily. I was like, that's fine because I don't like Tanya. And then eventually post Coke party, I liked Tanya a little bit more, uh, even though she was a little bit slow on the pickup, uh, ultimately, like I think it was the scene in the finale where she's like, it's uncanny how much this person looks like my husband. I'm like, Tanya, be just a little bit smarter, please. <laughs> like, yeah, you have the pieces. Just come on. Assume that there's, you know, the same person could know people. And it takes yeah, her until they're on imagine, the boat. I would have to imagine that the third season will continue her story somehow. That Greg will be involved. And Mike White has made comments about how, you know, he thinks that it, uh, murders or the deaths on the, the boat, I guess there were murders on the boat committed by Tanya, are going to trace back to him eventually. Um, you know, the third season takes place, you know, it focuses on um, Eastern mysticism and takes place with a bunch of white tourists in Bali or wherever. Um, somehow, Greg, I think, is going to be involved. Um, I don't think Do you want to see Greg again? I don't. I just have to imagine that, like, and no, I don't necessarily think he's going to be a major character. I just feel like if you're going to have three seasons of a show potentially more but if we're thinking of it as a triptych it would be strange to have this this through line through two of them and then just cut it when oh see like i was are. thinking more like we're gonna find Haley lou richardson but porsche's changed your name and as 
you know, become something else. Like, I, I agree that we're going to stick with the storyline, but I think having Greg be the runner through every season of White Lotus is uh, diminishing returns. Uh, John Grease is yeah. fine, but, like, that's not the character that I'm interested in no. uh, particularly. But I do like, I, I, I'm excited for what season three could be, but once again, as we were talking about with, like, Empire of Light and the thing that maybe sort of hit a little uh, off tone for some people for the first season of White Lotus is like, it needs to be super focused on how like these white rich people don't understand whatever they're getting. Yeah. Into. I mean the, the parallels between the white Lotus and the knives out movies are mm-hmm. strong. And I was thinking the other day about what the subject of the third knives out movie or the third Benoit blank mystery could potentially be what subject it was going to touch on and religion is the one that i sort of came down on but i had a hard time imagining how ryan johnson's formula would be applied to any sort of religious institution model or cult or whatever the fuck so i i yeah. kind of ruled that out <laughs> just, but i think he just does it, angels and demons but yeah. with benoit Blanc. god um but it's wait seems, i would watch that oh my god that's great <laughs> it's what needless to say it's a lot more of a natural fit for the white lotus um and i think you know there, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, meat on the bone there for mike white uh but it is fun to see these two very different takes on semi-similar subject matter certainly similar kinds of oblivious modern people although uh, uh, I can't, although i think i don't know what go ahead David. i was just gonna say the, the white lotus hammers down on the whiteness a little bit more than uh <laughs> i think the first knives out did but the glass onion less so uh, I just I'm excited to talk about Glass Onion with spoilers when we get there. I don't think we've really talked about it much at oh, all. Oh yeah, we should wait until after it's on Netflix, yeah. but it'll be fun. So people could watch it, so we can talk about the whole thing because it yeah. is like Barbarian, something that I would like to talk about the whole thing about. But uh, yeah, we'll get there. White Lotus. It was HBO oh, man. Sunday night HBO is still a thing. Good job. Uh, I'm going to do one last name. I'm just going to steal it from uh, Joanna's podcast with Bill Simmons because it's a sportsy thing. If you had to pick one, one MVP, who do you pick from the whole season? One uh, in terms of like the character. Just character. Or the I would say character. Pick one character. Oh, Mia. Mm. I would. She, I mean, I would. If I were to pick between Mia and Lucia, I would pick Lucia. That's interesting. Mia, interesting uh, see, pick. Mia. Mia schemed, but like innocently you know versus like actually scamming fifty thousand euros from somebody i was so glad that her night with valentina turned out to be just a good thing like that there wasn't a dark side to it they just had a great time and like valentina's gonna go find a girl they're gonna go they're gonna go clubbing and like the shitty piano player gets fired like i I was so happy that story (laughs) valentina is another character who uh similar to you know what dave was saying about tanya's storyline is just sort of dangling in the wind for like five episodes and suddenly clicks into focus and uh I, i came around in her in a big way uh i did i did like mia just for the joy of where her arc ends up but i think the secret glue of the season was f marie abraham interesting uh, yeah, i think can't go I home again the, wow. the energy that he is like the trickling down the trickling down uh masculine mistakes uh and missteps uh and womanizing and so forth that is, is sprinkling through that family tree it all starts with f marie and i love how he comports himself with the various girls they run into i love that shot in the very end of the finale when a pretty girl walks off of the easy jet that they're inexplicably and, taking home even though they're all rich. 
and they all all the men slowly turn in slow motion to watch it go by you know one generation after the next um he he and michael imperioli were a great duo uh for me um but and Aubrey plaza carries a lot of weight even though she's kind of locked into a certain mode megan faye's so good i mean like everyone kind of crushed it good show um i just feel like it's daphne just absolutely daphne she is just got to figure it out, man. Like, I don't want to be unhappy and have to swallow all my bad feelings, but she's got hair full of secrets and she knows how to get what she wants. And she I just, I, it, it didn't occur to me that she and Ethan fucked on that tower when I was watching it, but like, that's probably what happened, right? Seems like it. Otherwise, like, we missed a monologue that was life changing for Ethan. And wouldn't you like to seen it if it was a monologue? Oh, yeah. I for- <laughs> you know what? I forgot about that, that it is implied that they. They went and banged behind some rocks, whoever they are. Um, yeah, that's a curious wrinkle. But, you know, I wonder if, if, uh, if, what's her face, if uh, Aubrey Plaza's character knew about it, if she would allow it as sort of like, you know, the, the, the spark that he needed to. Yeah, right. To get back I mean, in the relationship. if you give, do you, give her do you a think pass she, that. Do you think she has sex with Cameron? Do you think she had sex with Cameron? Did, did she have sex? Did she? Did she oh, have sex uh, with Cameron? No, I I believe her wholeheartedly when she says they just kissed. Interesting. Am I too trusting? It's possible. I mean, this is why you're uh, not the Ethan in this situation. Mm. <laughs> what do you think, Dave? Uh, I also believe that they just kissed, but the damning thing is that she left the note about going up for her hat, which meant she did intend at some point to, uh, to fuck mm. it. I, yeah. That's Which true. I think Ethan, Ethan clocks too, and that's why it sort of doesn't matter. It's like if the yeah. betrayal already happens in your mind, that's the equivalent of what she was saying to Ethan. So, but I think also there's a degree of these characters not entirely being in control of their faculties over the course of the season. Like they're all sort of busy in love and lust and and trying to understand how to find happiness with each other on their own terms, and they are making rash decisions uh, in the heat of the moment. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it, that's an interesting point because like that moment feels so calculated, but I still think she may not have entirely known what her end game was when she did that. Yeah. I mean, and again, you can't know all the corners of somebody's mind says or white loaded season two or yeah. the colors of the rainbow or the real colors of women talking. Nobody knows mm. and nobody can find out. <laughs> When the Finding in the War Room uh, retreat happens in Sicily and we all go to this resort together, we're going to behave much better. I just want to be clear about Mm -hmm. it. That's true. I don't know. Michael's pretty hot. (laughs) Which is going to cause trouble early. We'll set up all (laughs) of our plot lines ahead of time and then see which ones actually follow through. That does it for this week's show. Uh, Matt Pat just died halfway through, unfortunately. Uh, the too much man talking, women talking. No, his internet went out. He'll be back next week. And we're going to talk about Avatar, as we promise. It may or may not. Avatar episode. It, it, it really might be a uh, full Avatar episode, which I think is fine. Uh, in the meantime, 92 minutes of talking car. <laughs> in the meantime, tell the people who you are. He was Matt Patches. You can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Patches. He also plugs our... Oh, he's a, 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 an editor at uh, Polygon.com. Uh, you can also go to our website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you could find the back episodes and uh, the quarter quells and all the goodness that you need 
You could stream it there. You could get the RSS feeds there. You could download the MP3s there. We're a free podcast. Go check it out. Uh, Dave, did you? Are, are you going to include uh, us all performing the theme song from The White Lotus at the top of our White Lotus segment, or do I need to Pro- probably make no, some magic could, again? I mean, you could do it. You could do it again if you. <laughs> I like that you think it's a tongue thing, and I'm just it's like hitting not my a mouth. Thing. In my head, it's always I always remember. It's a tongue no, thing. it's definitely just this. It's like yeah. the. It's just like people going like woo. <laughs> it's really fun to try to sing. Yeah, uh, but whenever I do it around Asa, he goes, "Don't do that." It also yeah. makes sense when I say or sing anything. I think a lot of our listeners will relate. Um, and now he's kicked me out of my own bed. Wow. Um, I uh, I am David Ehrlich. I sleep in a crib. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find me on in a crib. Uh, you can find all of us on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. No, I'm getting back to my fucking bed tonight. I swear to God. Uh, I made the mistake of sleeping in the middle last night, and he got all hyper and wanted to play, and I was just like, I can't handle this. Um, uh, you can find us all on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. Read it live on the show. Or if you are not an American user or predisposed to using iTunes, you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com hey it's me not Matt, not Matt Patches again I'm Dave Gonzalez you can find me on Twitter at DA7E you can find me on the, the trial by content podcast on Spotify and if you go to patreon.com slash DA7E and Neil Neil spelled the traditional uh, normal way you can find my uh, Patreon podcast where Neil Miller and I talk about different types of pop culture uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me on Little Gold Men, where this week we're talking about the Critics' Choice and Golden Globe nominations, uh, hot topics. Uh, Dave and I worked on the Still Watching podcast about the White Lotus, which is really great. Honestly, it got great interviews. Chris and Richard were really fun to listen to. So if you missed it and you just want to keep living those White Lotus vibes, uh, go listen to it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, or you can find us all on F-I-T-W-R, where you can tell us what you want to hear us say about Avatar The Way of Water. Or you can answer this week's there on question, which was... In honor of Avatar The Way of Water, what's your favorite aquatic beast in movies? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'm done.